chapter 16, uh, on page 1111, 1111. Um, uh, so if you've got a church Bible, if you turn that up, um, I, I'm going to make my apologies now for pronunciation of some of the place names, because I'm going to get it wrong. <laughs> so that's Acts chapter 16, and we're going to be starting at verse number five. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in number. Paul and his companions travelled throughout the region of forgot there we go, there's the first one. Pyphiga and Galatia having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the borders of Mycenae, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. And after Paul had seen the vision, We got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed through, uh, sailed straight from Samothrace, and from next day we went on to Neapolis. From there, we travelled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who were gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple clothes. She was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money by, for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them there before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crown joined in and the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the socks. After midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken, 
at once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prisoner's doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He had brought them out and asked, uh, Cyrus, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into the house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and drew us in, and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrate, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and, in, and encouraged them. Then they left. Uh, if you've got uh, your Bible with you, do open it up to uh, Acts chapter 16. Uh, verse 6. Uh, and as you do that, uh, let me pray for us again. Uh, Lord Jesus, we praise you that you were the risen King, uh, that you are our salvation. Uh, and thank you that you're active in your world today. Uh, and I pray as we look at this uh, next section in the, uh, in the story of how the message about you rang out across the world. Uh, that you'd help us to uh, see our part in that story this morning. Uh, because I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, if you've um, been with us um, over the last few weeks, you'll know that the book of Acts is written to uh, Theophilus, uh, Luke's friend, to give him certainty that Jesus is continuing his work of seeking and saving the lost. Uh, and it, tell, it sort of... Um, gives us a history of how the message about Jesus um, was proclaimed in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and makes its way uh, all the way to Rome, which in the first century was the ends of the earth. As far as Paul was concerned, it was global. It had gone global by then. Uh, we've seen that the first 12 chapters uh, sort of focus around the Jerusalem church and, and Peter's ministry particularly. Uh, but there's a shift in chapter 12 as the gospel starts to move towards those who are not Jews. Uh, and in chapters 13 uh, to last week, you saw the, sort of the conclusion of, of Paul's first missionary journey. As the gospel went global, uh, we saw a church in Antioch that wasn't started by the Jerusalem church. It had grown up all on its own and sent Paul and Barnabas, and they took the gospel to uh, 
I guess, parts of Turkey today. Uh, but by chapter 15, uh, sorry, 16, verse 5, Luke gives us a summary of that first missionary journey. Look down at that with me. The churches were strengthened in faith and grew daily in numbers. As Paul and Barnabas make their way back, uh, where they've planted churches, so the churches are, are beginning to thrive. Well, what starts in uh, chapter 16, verse 6, is Luke's description of Paul's, what's known as the second missionary journey, which we're going to look at um, for the next couple of weeks and then pick up perhaps later on in 2023. Uh, and that runs all the way to chapter 19, verse 20. I uh, Just look down at chapter 19, verse 20. We get another summary statement. Uh, Luke says, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Um, so Luke is continuing to describe to us Paul's, um, Paul's ministry to give Theophilus certainty that Jesus is continuing uh, his work. And I think the question that uh, Luke is beginning to answer in chapter 16 in the verses that were read is this. Like, what is Jesus up to in your life, Theophilus? That's a good question uh, for us to, to think about. What is he doing? What is my place uh, in the story of the message about him going to the ends of the earth? And the first thing that Luke wants us to see about the story that, that we play in that message is that, well, firstly, that Jesus leads the way. Now, that's, I think, what all those uh, verses are in verses 6 uh, through to 10 uh, that Luke wants us to see. They're not just descriptions of places that we can't pronounce, but they're a description of Jesus leading the way. It's not just a summary of Paul's travels, and it can be tempting to read it and kind of skip over to the exorcism that happens with the slave girl or the, the earthquake um, in the prison cell and miss the significance of verses 6 to 10, because well, look what Paul says. Uh, sorry, what Luke records. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them. So they passed by Mysia and went to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Do you notice the details that Luke records? Uh, the Spirit, verse 6, prevents them from going to where they want to go. Uh, down in verse 6. Uh, down in verse 7, the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to enter Bithynia. Uh, and then Paul has this vision of this man from Macedonia, uh, and they conclude together in the, in the, the wake of this vision that, well, that's, that's where they're to go. Uh, Jesus is leading them. That was his promise. Uh, you can read about it in Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all nations, and I will be with you to the very end of the age. Or Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Wait for the, promise my, uh, wait for the gift my Father promised, the Holy Spirit, and you'll be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, to the ends of the earth. Jesus is at work. He's alive. 
Now, we're not told how the Spirit of Jesus prevents them or how the Holy Spirit kept them from entering the province of Asia or exactly what this vision was that that Paul had. Was it a dream? Was it a trance? Who knows? And I think we've got to be careful, um, being a good conservative evangelical, that we don't get carried away too much. Uh, Notice that they're not passive they decide that they've got to go to certain places. They're, they know that Jesus has commissioned them to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. Uh, notice that after the vision, Luke records that they conclude, end of verse 10, that God had called us to preach the gospel. The reason it's changed to us there, by the way, is because Luke is now with them. You'll notice that change as we go through. But um, So they've clearly done some thinking. Uh, it's not that they're passive, just waiting for Jesus to lead them. No, They strategize, they think, they pray, they discuss. But it's very clear it's Jesus that's leading them. We're not told exactly how. We're just told that he does. And I don't know. I don't know the answers to how he leads. Maybe it's different in different situations. Maybe maybe their Uber driver didn't turn up. um, Or they put the wrong postcode in the sat-nav and ended up in a different place. Like, however it happened, the point is clear. Jesus, he wants them in Macedonia, and he's going to get them there. Jesus leads the way. Uh, He gets his people where he needs them to be in order that his kingdom will grow. If you've been part of this church family this year, you'll know that we spent several months discussing a building down the road. Asking God to lead us, asking him to help us to think about our own finances and what we could contribute, getting us to talk and have conversations together that if we got this building, what could we use it for to further the work of the Rylands Community Church in the Rylands? It seemed like the right thing to do, didn't it? It was wonderful to see God stirring your hearts to give so sacrificially so that we could raise a decent bid. But Jesus said no. Now, I know, humanly speaking, we were outbid with someone with deeper pockets. Or maybe the spirit of Jesus prevented us. Well, think of your own story this morning. Why are you in Ryland's Community Church? Now, I know you some are saying, that's a good question. I'm not quite sure, but... But why, why are you here? Why are you in this community? Why, why your colleagues? Why your neighbours? Why your friends? Why those people around you? Why the family that you're in? And Luke says, because Jesus leads the way. Now, you did make real decisions and you have real responsibilities for the choices that you make. The Bible's very clear about that. We're not to be passive, we're to think carefully and, and seek the wisdom of other people. But let's not, let's not be naive, Jesus leads the way. He's the king, he's alive. He leads his people. I know some of you this morning are, are wondering, like, what's God got for me in the future? What's he up to? What's, what's he going to do with me? Well, as you make his priorities, as you seek first his kingdom, and as you push doors and you talk to people and you pray and discuss and you make real decisions based on the best available evidence that you have with the gifts you have and all the rest of it, be confident Jesus leads. 
even if that sometimes means he closes doors that are painful when they close or doesn't give you what you want. Paul didn't get where he wanted to go. He ended up in Macedonia because Jesus said, no, you're going that way. So liberating. You know, in our secular culture, people have to live with the deep fear that no one's really in control. And the pressure comes early, doesn't it? Kids growing up in school saying, do the best you can, otherwise who knows what kind of future you have. Make sure you get the GCSEs that you're, you're capable of. Be the best you can be, because you, you don't want to waste this life, do you? Make sure you're authentic. Make the most of every second, because it, before you know it, it's gone. Uh, maybe you're retired and you look back on your life and you feel depressed or disappointed, like, what have I done? Have I, have, I, have I messed up? Have I not been good enough? Such an enslaving worldview, secularism, isn't it? Is it no any wonder that we're all so frantic and anxious and busy and, and fill our kids' lives with so much activity? And Jesus says, look, take a breath. I'm leading. I'm the king. I'm the... I'm the wind in the sails of your boat. Like, you still have to sail. You've got to put the, the sails up. <laughs> but he leads his people. And he leads his people because he's seeking and saving the lost. That's the next thing we see. Jesus saves. These brilliant stories of Lydia, the slave girl, and the jailer. Notice how Luke has slowed down the narrative now for this second missionary journey. Like Previously, we just went to towns and we saw people respond, and um, not as individuals, but as crowds. But now we get a whole chapter and we get three vignettes of three individuals. Lydia, a slave woman, and this jailer. Uh, and Luke wants us to listen to their story, the story of how Jesus rescued them. And so first we get Lydia's conversion. They make their way to Macedonia. They get to Philippi, a Roman colony, verse 12, uh, and the leading city of that district, of the district of Macedonia. So we're in a strategic city. This is like, this is the Rylands of the UK, not really. It's like, you know, it's a big deal, this city. And we see something of the same pattern of Paul's ministry. In non-Roman colonies, in that were particularly Jewish, he would go to the synagogue first. Do you remember that? But here on the Sabbath, verse 13, uh, Luke says, we went outside to the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. Now they go to the river and they expect to find people praying because in Roman colonies where there were no synagogues and they weren't allowed to build synagogues, the Jewish people would gather around the river for where there could be ceremonial washing and they sort of did church there, for want of a better phrase. And so Luke says, that's where we went. That's where we expected to find the people who would listen to the message about Jesus being the Christ, the King. And as they go out to the river, what they find is a group of women who had gathered there. And there's one woman called Lydia who's described as a worshipper of God. Scholars think she's probably not Jewish, probably Gentile, but is sympathetic Uh, She's a maker of purple cloth, so she's a rich businesswoman from the district of Thyatira, the town of Thyatira. And it's wonderful, all this effort to get these guys to this 
this place. And what does the Lord do, verse 14? The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Paul does what he can. He prays, he discusses, he listens to where God might lead him, and they make it to this one place, and there's this one woman, Lydia, this business owner, and the Lord says, I want you. And he opens her heart. That's wonderful, isn't it? You may have given up on seeing friends and family come to know the joy of following Jesus. Maybe grown a bit apathetic, indifferent maybe to those that are lost around you because it feels like it's just hard work talking about Jesus and seeming no progress. Uh, Maybe you just feel daunted by the numbers of people in the world that haven't heard about him yet. Disheartened by cultural apathy or growing hostility to the message about Jesus. Well, Luke says, look, Jesus leads you to where he wants you and he saves people. He does it. Do what you can, but it's Jesus that opens people's hearts. And so, brothers and sisters, like, let's get to praying. I think it would be a good application here, wouldn't it? I love the idea of the ministry that Rachel Knight's setting up to uh, put postcards through people's doors and offer to pray for them. It's just so wonderful. What a great thing to do. And that's what we have to do, don't we? If we're going to see our community reach for the good news of Jesus, we've got to plead with the Lord that he would open the hearts of people in our community. Maybe that, if you've not thought about joining that ministry, it'd be a great thing to do. I know she said you have to meet every two weeks. You don't have to do that. Just pray and meet when you can. Join that ministry. Let's pray. Or as you think about friends and Christmas, let's pray for friends to to engage with the message about Jesus, whether that's in our activities that we put on or many other activities across the city or in the city that you work. See, Jesus has put you in the office you're in or on the ward or in the classroom or or wherever it is with the colleagues you have, with the friendships and neighbours that you have, the people you play sport with, so that you can do what you can with the gifts he's given you to make much of Jesus and, well, he'll save people. Luke wants us to have confidence, wants Theophilus to have confidence. This is what he's doing in the world. He's seeking and saving the lost. The really cool thing about Lydia, and I didn't get this until I looked at a map, is that we're told that she's from Thyatira, which is part of the region Paul was prevented from traveling to in the previous verses. Very interesting, that, isn't it? See, perhaps the best person to reach Thyatira wasn't Paul and Barnabas, but it was Lydia. And you'll know from the book of Revelation that a church is in Thyatira that Jesus addresses. Perhaps it's Lydia who's the best person to take the gospel to her town. Maybe that town needs her wealth to help support a church in that town. See, Jesus leads because Jesus saves. That's what he's doing. And then in verse 16, Paul is on on his way back to the place of prayer. So he goes back to the group of people that he thinks will be sympathetic to his message first. Uh, When this slave girl, who's possessed by some sort of spirit and is being used and abused by people to generate income for themselves, starts following Paul and Silas around and, and shouting, 
uh, saying something about who they are and what they're about. It's, it's a really interesting situation, exactly what she's shouting or why she's shouting it, we're not told. What I find slightly amusing about it is that after days of this happening, Paul becomes annoyed and then casts out the demon. Not quite sure why he didn't just do that on the first day, but there we are. But the point is clear. Whatever, whatever actually happened in that story, Jesus saves. He puts this slave girl in front of Paul and his companions to deliver her from the slavery that she's in, from the, impre- the oppression that she's in, uh, to bring her into this new community that Jesus is forming in Philippi. It wasn't Paul's plan. He thought he'd be better with people by the river. But Jesus keeps putting this girl in front of him. No, I want her as well. If you just flick to the end of the chapter, to verse 40, and notice at the end, we'll pick this up in a moment as well, but after Paul and Simon came out of prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. I love the thought of, uh, Lydia's probably got the biggest house, and now all these people that in her household and the jailer's household and this slave girl are now, they're now gathered together, uh, freed from her masters that were abusing her. She's, she's safe with God's people, part of a new community. See, Jesus got Paul to Philippi so Lydia and the slave girl could be sisters in Christ. It's beautiful, isn't it? I guess it forces us to ask the question, not just who do we know and why are we where we are, but who's Jesus keep, who does he keep putting in front of you that you may not have thought that you should share the good news with? Uh, maybe for us, it's the, the refugees that are increasingly nearby, the families from Hong Kong in the new, um, the new, the new estate, refugees from Afghanistan. People that, not naturally people that we'll be friends with, that we're going to meet with, but who Jesus has put in our way that we might share the good news with, that we might love and care for and see them rescued. See, as we pray for friends and neighbours and colleagues and ask Jesus, who, who's he put around us? Let's also pray for eyes to see, like, well, who's in front of us? Jesus leads, Jesus saves. And then we get the story of the jailer. And Jesus literally shuts the door, doors on Paul and Silas, doesn't he? So that he might open the heart of this jailer's life. So that's what happens. Uh, they rescue this, this um, Jesus rescues this slave girl. Uh, and then the owners realized, verse 19, look down at that, that their hope of making money was gone. So they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into uproar by advocating customs unlawful for the Romans to accept or practice. I mean, it's just so dishonest, isn't it? They're not sending the city into uproar. 
they've just stopped them oppressing this girl, this vulnerable girl. You know, historically, and it's true today, that the good news about Jesus is always opposed by those who feel it undermines their position, power, or pockets. You see it all over the world, see it all over history. Uh, you see it in the book of Acts. In Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, it was the religious leaders, wasn't it? Who hated the popularity of the apostles. So they're the crowds that were being drawn to, to the message about Jesus. And here in this Roman colony of Philippi, well, it's these, those exploiting this girl, seeing their income and their profit margins fall because of the way the gospel has liberated this girl. And so they manipulate the authorities and they get Paul and Barnabas thrown into prison. They tell lies about what it is that they're doing. They label them. They see them as dangerous for society. Shut them up. Get them away. And Luke says, it's okay. Because Jesus has got a jailer he needs to hear the gospel as well. And his household. And it's an amazing story, isn't it? Like Jesus shakes the earth so that the foundations of this jailer's worldview will be shaken. But it's not the earthquake particularly, as amazing as that is that Jesus would use that, that makes this, that transforms this guy's heart. No, it seems to be the lives and the ministry of Paul and Silas. Uh, We're told that they're beaten badly. Uh, Down in verse 22, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. The magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. And after they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. They go through a horrific time here, don't they? Luke goes to lengths to tell us it was a bad beating, flogged, beaten badly, beaten with rods, beaten severely, thrown into prison. But their response, frankly, it's just remarkable. Look down at verse 25. All this has happened to them, but about midnight, Paul and Silas, what are they doing? They're praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them, and presumably this jailer as well. I just imagine what's going through this jailer's head at this point. Why do they live like this? Where does this joy come from? Where's this hope? Like, why, why respond to such hostility, such darkness, such evil towards them with singing? And confidence in the God who'd put them there. I don't know what they were singing. Maybe it was in Christ alone or we rest on thee. I don't know which, what the songs were in those days. Certainly praying for, that this wouldn't stop the advance of God's message in Philippi and the surrounding places. Uh, the jailer likely chained to them because he's told to guard them carefully is hearing all of this. And his, his whole world is being turned upside down by what he's hearing. And, and then the earth just starts shaking. <laughs> there's, probably, there's no lights at this point, are there, at this, in the first century? So as he realizes the chains are broken, he assumes the prisoners are there, well, they must have escaped. And so he goes to kill himself, knowing that they would, he would get worse if it's found out that 
um, that he's let them go or been responsible for their escape. But Paul says, no, don't, don't kill yourself. We're still here. And wonderfully, this man says, puts it all together and goes, I need, I need what you've got. How can I be saved? And Paul replies, verse 31, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. You need to trust Jesus, and let me unpack that for you. Come and do Hope Explored or Christianity. Let me, let me just help you understand what that means. And it's beautiful, isn't it? Look what happens in 33. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds And then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Here's this jailer saved by Jesus, part of a community, no longer beating but washing and caring. You see, he sees in their life their confidence in Christ that, that the suffering that they've undergone, like it's under his authority. Uh, that there's joy there, deep joy, despite being in the darkness. See, so he's surprised that by their response to their imprisonment wasn't panic or despair, but steadfast trust in the sovereignty of the Lord. They could worship in prison because they knew that whether free or in shackles, they belonged to King Jesus. They knew that he leads, even if that's sometimes into dark, dark valleys. Friends, I don't know the difficulty that all of you might be going, some of you might be going through. I know some stories here. But might it be just that that what's happening to you is the means by which Jesus uses, uses what's happening to you to break into the life of someone around you. Someone who's watching you and seeing how you're responding. Now, I don't mean that, like the joy here and the praying here and the singing here, I don't, I don't think it's an evangelical grin, you know, I'm okay. Hooray, hooray for suffering. That's, that's not the point. I'm sure the beating was particularly painful and difficult. But he was able to press the lordship of Jesus into it and know, I can trust him in the darkness. See, Lydia, a rich businesswoman, a slave girl, a jailer, three people from very different walks of life, uh, saved by Jesus. See, Jesus is at work. He's seeking and saving the lost. And he might just be seeking and saving you this morning. See, it's well good for us to ask who's God put around us 
that we might speak the message of Jesus to. But if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, why are you here? What's he up to? Is he beginning to open your heart to the truth about who he is and why he came? It'd be worth thinking that through, wouldn't it? Because he's alive and he's seeking and saving the lost. In Philippi, this important city in the Roman Empire and in the Rylands as well. Jesus leads, Jesus saves. Finally, as we close, Jesus builds his church. Uh, look down at verse 40. I don't know what this gathering was like, but it must have been extraordinary, must have been. <laughs> this new church, Lydia, slave girl, jailer, households, lives just completely turned upside down by the message about Jesus. It's a remarkable, remarkable first church in Europe. I mean, this is probably the first church in Europe, in Philippi. But there's something really interesting about what Luke describes here, uh, not just in 40, but in what's just preceded. Do you, do you remember when Peter was in jail earlier in the book of Acts uh, and the chains fell off? And what did they do? They escaped. They ran away. Uh, back in chapter 13, when Paul is mistreated and beaten in some of the other cities and towns that he's visited, what happens? He, he escapes. He runs away, goes to somewhere safer. But in Philippi, he stays. I don't know quite the, how the jail system works, but he sticks with the jailer, and they either get back to jail, or maybe the jailer lives near the jail or in the jail somehow, his family are there. Or, I don't know quite how it works. But whatever's happened is Paul and Silas have stayed. And not just stayed so they can bear testimony to the jailer and answer his questions, but so they can confront the magistrates and say, look, what happened to us was illegal under Roman rule. See, Paul stands on his rights here, doesn't he? Because it was illegal in Philippi, in a Roman colony, to deny Roman citizens a proper trial and beat them. And that's what had happened to them. They were meant to be in prison, waiting for trial for then, so that they might then be punished. But what happens instead is the crowd and the authorities beat them up first, then throw them in prison. And Paul says, that's just not on. That's not how it works in the Roman Empire. I want an apology, and I want vindication. Now, why does he do that here? Well, I think Luke says it's for the sake of the gospel, for the protection and the freedom of these new converts. You see, if Paul had left quietly... If he'd have just had a little word to the jailer and said, I'm so glad you're part of the family now. Do you mind if we do one before you know, everyone gets up? Well, what would have happened? It would have left the new Christians in Philippi vulnerable to exactly the same kind of mistreatment. The precedent would have been set in Philippi that you can just trample on Christians' rights and get away with it. And Paul says, that's not on. <laughs> I want a public apology. Uh, I want vindication, uh, which means the magistrates will have to think very hard before they treat Christians badly again. The, you see, the precedent has been set. In Philippi, the gospel can be safe here under Roman rule. Now, it won't stay like that. By the, the you know, AD 60, it got pretty bleak for Christians in Roman Empire. But for now... 
safety. You see the point, Theophilus, you might be hearing that Christianity is bad for the Roman Empire. It's not. It's about rescuing people and and saving people, delivering people from oppression and the mistreatment in the justice system. It's actually quite good for the Roman Empire. You can trust this message, Theophilus. Perhaps we need to remember that as well. See, increasingly in the secular West, there's the charge against Christianity. Do you know what? Have your faith, but please, please keep it quiet because it's dangerous for society. It tramples over people's right to express themselves as they feel they should express themselves. It's arrogant and um, patriarchal or dangerous to insist on one way to know God. And maybe you started to hear that. Maybe you're exploring Christianity and you think, can I, is this something I can really take seriously given what people say about it? And Luke wants you to know, do you know, the gospel's really good news. It's not about hurting people, it's liberating people from oppression. A mistreated slave girl Rescued. A jailer part of an oppressive system transformed. There's a really helpful book that's just come out called The Air We Breathe by a guy called Glenn Scrivener who who says that really there's seven things in our society that we all love and long for in our society of justice and freedom and the protection of the most vulnerable and the legal system and consent and all these things that we, we really value. They're just an outworking of the gospel and how it's taken hold of our culture. Historically, that's been the case. See, the gospel is really good news for societies. society. The reason you believe in human rights is because of the Christian message. The reason you believe that the vulnerable in society should be protected is because of the Christian message and its work in our society historically. The reason we've got a legal system is because of Christianity. The reason we've got education All the things we love and cherish that people say Christianity is endangering come from the Christian worldview. And without the Christian worldview, they they all collapse. You can read the book. I'll stop there. See what Luke's doing. Like Theophilus, have confidence. Jesus leads, Jesus saves, Jesus is building his church. And here's the first church in Europe, the first converts in Europe, forming a little church, who Paul will later write to in the the book of Philippians that we have in our Bibles, a a church that entered into joyful partnership and saw the gospel, invested in the gospel, going all over the world. He opens the hearts of Lydia. He disarms the evil oppressing of the slave girl. He literally shakes the foundations of the jailer so that people might hear and meet Jesus. Let's take a moment just to reflect on what Jesus has been saying to us about our situation, how he might use us.